Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hey guys, thank you for joining me on another episode of Social Workers Rise. Before we get into the episode with Damon Wholesome talking about sex therapy, I just wanted to take a moment to pause and just talk about how hard it is right now. It's hard to be a social worker, you guys. It's hard normally, and normally our industry struggles with overwhelm and burnout but especially right now. So it's hard for us veteran social workers who have been doing this for a long time and especially hard for the newer social workers too. So if you are just getting your degree, if you're just getting started, if you're new to the field and you're feeling like, what is going on? I'm not making the kind of impact that I thought I was going to have, am I even meant to be a social worker? You know, I want you to know that that's normal. Unfortunately, it's normal. And a lot of us had felt that way. And I wanted to do something for you guys specifically who might be feeling this way and who might need a little bit more guidance about, you know, what does burnout look like in real life? How do I know if my client is feeling burnt out? Like, how do I even build that rapport quickly? Because a lot of times we don't even have time to build that rapport. So we need to know what it looks like in real life. And okay, great. Like we're burnt out. I'm burnt out. What do we do about it? What's next? How can we help What are some tools that I can use? And that's exactly what I'm going to be giving you on our virtual event on May 20th. That's a Wednesday from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. I'm teaming up with my colleague and yogi specialist. She's also a social worker and breast cancer survivor. So she is just amazing. And her and I are going to be talking about, one, how do you build rapport quickly with people? Two, once you have that rapport, what does burnout look like? A lot of times it's with caregivers or with ourselves even. What does it look like in ourselves? So we're going to be talking about that. And also, once we realized someone may be burned out and need extra help, what do we do? How do we help them to the best of our ability and give you guys some real tools so that you can 
be better equipped to help them and help yourselves. So I hope you will join me on May 20th from 9 to 12. And the events tickets, you can find them on Eventbrite. It's going to be called, the event's called Coping Through Crisis, which is exactly what we're all trying to do. Copingthroughcrisis.eventbrite.com. I hope to see you there. Now, let's jump into this episode. Hi. Hi, Damon. Thank you so much for joining me on Social Workers Rise. I'm so excited to talk to you and excited to get a little bit uncomfortable. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad that you did. I I love doing stuff like this. Awesome. So, so a little bit of background. Damon and I met in grad school when we were getting our master's back in like, I don't know. I think we met that maybe the first year, like 2013, 2012. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine 2012 when we graduated in 2015? It was crazy. Oh my gosh. It's only been five years and it seems like it's been 10 or 12. (laughs) It feels like forever. Oh my gosh. Okay. So we have been staying connected on social media and I love your posts and everything that you do. So, um, but first I want to know something that I've never asked you. Um, How did you get into social work? Like how, how did you know you wanted to be a social worker? That's an interesting one. Um, So it's interesting for me because it's kind of a social work or the, the term social worker is kind of a means to an end for me. I sometimes I more often identify as a, as a clinical therapist or a therapist over the social worker moniker, because, you know, there's a distinct difference. I like doing the mental health, the one-on-one. I like doing all of that less. So the social services linkages, things like that. So I, to back it up, I was in corporate America for many, many years working in the wireless industry. And I always was really comfortable talking about sex and relationships and things like that. And being a gay man, there was so much stigma and shame and people having challenges with expression which led to unsafe sex, which led to HIV and all of this stuff. And I never really had those challenges, not to the extreme most people did. So I wanted to be, I wanted to help that environment. I wanted to help that demographic. And so I kind of researched how to go about doing that. And an LCSW license as an older adult, you know, transitioning careers from a corporate America drone over to this world was like the best fit. I didn't want to be a psychiatrist, way too much schooling, and I hate math. And I didn't want to go MFT route because the more I researched it, the more I found out that it was really, it can be a real struggle getting hours. And it's, you know, there were just more doors open with an MSW, a master's in social work or an LCSW. Um, I wasn't really that familiar with a PsyD and they're really expensive and that's more kind of testing and things like that. So 
it just really fit the bill for me. So I kind of reverse engineered my, I want to do this in my life. What, what degree, what letters after my name will get me there the quickest, most efficient with the most potential. And that's how I came up with being an LCSW. That is fascinating. I don't know if anyone else, like I've never heard anyone else's story <laughs> like that. It's, yeah. not often, it's not often that we meet people from corporate America who are like, I want to help people. Yeah. Because it's like, as I was doing, like I taught like sex education classes and stuff. I just kind of fell into it. Um, I was always been very open and honest about sex and sexuality so, you know, I really kind of focus on destigmatizing that. So people would ask me to present and teach classes and things like that. And I loved doing it. So I would go do that. And then I would go to this, you know, corporate America, boring, weird, hierarchical job. And it paid the bills. I'm not going to complain. I, I like doing it. I was good at it. But it just wasn't what I really wanted. You know, I, it's not what I want to do for the rest of my life, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So what do you do now for for work? I know you kind of do a lot of different things. So what are you doing for your day job and then like on the side? Yeah, that's a good question. I do several different things. I have, um, I do my, my regular nine to five job. I work at a community health clinic um, where I do outreach and engagement. I do mental health to an entire range of people and families. Everything from, I mean, like little kids, we're talking like infants, all the way up to older adults, grandparents, stuff like that. Everything from individuals that have, you know, oppositional defiant, ADHD, all the way through to schizophrenia and personality disorders. So, that is my nine to five job, which I really love. There's a lot of field work, variety. It's a really wonderful community agency. It was founded and is operated primarily by African-American individuals. So I am literally the only white male therapist there. So it's mostly black and brown. And that's mostly the people that we also service. And I love it. It fits me really well. It's very natural and organic and fun it's it's like a family oh that's nice i like yeah. that and then on the flip side i <laughs> i also um do private practice at home and i see one or two clients maybe more depending on how busy i get during the um during the week or weekends and that's where i kind of specialize in you know, the LGBT community and working on like relationships. I do a lot of couples therapy, a lot of focusing on communication, sex, sexuality, how to improve life as a couple and, you know, a whole variety of things. That's amazing. So would you identify yourself as a sex therapist? I do. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I actually identify myself as a sex positive therapist, you know, somebody who really works with either individuals or even other professionals to help them understand and handle talking about sex and sexuality with their clients or people working at 
being better understood of what their their needs and wants are for sex and sexuality. So what do what do people usually come to you about? Like, what is their common problem that they talk to you about or that they need help with? That's a good question. Um, so I'm very, I'm pretty active on social media and I also run a, a, a dance and play party, which is a party for gay men that is sex positive. So it actually has like physical engagement, dancing and stuff like that. So when people see that, people kind of have this idea of who I am as a person which is someone who's kind of pushing the boundaries of sex and sexuality. So a lot of people come to me when they are kind of aware of their own sex and sexuality, their own challenges or struggles within their relationship, and they want to fine tune it and communicate. Like people will go to somebody, say that you're in a relationship and you want to open it up. You want to invite someone in to have sex with you and your partner. I'm someone who can help you navigate that. But I find that the people who really come to me are the ones who have already done that and understand it. But we're really getting into the weeds, the nuances, the, the culture and the terminology and the real fine tuning of how to navigate that stuff. Kind of the, I'm the professional for the professionals. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Hard to explain. (laughs) So, you know, I, I really try and engage and help people understand what they want. It's, you might have people that are in the leather community, which have a dom, a sub, a sir, a master, all those things. So they're familiar with this or the BDSM community. So they're into all these things and they know what they're doing. But now they need to learn how to fine tune it with their partner. Mm, what is BDSM? Bondage, domination, and sadomasochism. So it's a just a general term for people who engage in kind of alternative sexual practices. More of um, how would I describe it in a layman's terms? Somebody who would be more akin to engage with a a person in a a dominant or a submissive role there's labels there are ways that people act and proceed that are very particular to their own like desires and kind of i would say just generally non-traditional okay okay all of this i'll be honest all of this makes me extremely uncomfortable like talking about it I know, but that's what, that's what you do. You talk about it and you get more comfortable. I know know. it's part of our culture or my culture. Uh, It is. (laughs) No, it's not just you. It's, it's the American culture. Americanized culture is very, very sex negative. It's very shaming, very stigma based. Uh, We live in a very, very puritanical society. We don't talk about sex or sexuality. And then we just expect people to know what to do. And if there's any variation from this white cisgender heterosexual engagement, people think you're bad or broken or something else. And that's not true at all. Yeah. Yeah. I def- thank you for validating my feelings. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know, you're, you're good. I mean, as I said, I see people all the time, professionals and, you know, civilians that 
just really don't know how to talk or engage with sex and sexuality. And it does a real disservice to the community because your, your client, if they don't feel comfortable sharing with you, you're not getting the full story and you're not really helping or protecting them from something that could be negative. Yeah, that's true. And I, I do notice that that's, so I work with, um, right now I'm in palliative care and it's a lot, I do see a lot of people in middle age, like in their forties, fifties who are very, very sick and, um, and who now are unable to be sexually active. And I like, I would, I don't know. I don't really know or feel comfortable. I don't know how to address it or talk about it or like I provide empathy, but I feel like that's just so shallow. Do you have any tips (laughs) for me? (laughs) Well, honestly, empathy is not a bad place to start for sure. A lot of people just want to feel heard in those scenarios. I can't count how many times I worked with a child or a family and the parents were so not physically engaged or emotionally engaged because they took so much time taking care of their child that their relationship was greatly suffering. So what would end up happening is they would become stressed with the child and then they become stressed with each other and they never really engaged or communicated their wants and their needs. So it was this just big ball of, of anger and anxiety. So just me being there, even though I would, I would do my focus and my client was primarily the child, but then I would end up talking to the parents about when was the last time you guys were intimate? When's the last time you guys decided to positively engage with each other and prioritize each other? And a lot of times they'd just be like um, months or a year or something like that. And empowering them to really reconnect is some of the best work that I can do. So that's really an interesting perspective on helping the child because, uh, and it's something that we did not learn in grad school. I can tell you that much. Um, Yeah, for sure. So like what, how does having sex like, or not having sex impact a parent's ability to be there for the child and be present and and be happy in their relationship? That's a good question. And it's also, I mean, it's going to be different for everyone, obviously. What I really feel is humans crave connection. They crave intimacy. They crave touch. They crave being validated and loved. So if you're not getting that and the only thing you're focused on is the problems in your life, either poor communication or feeling unfulfilled or the child acting up, you're doing a huge disservice to your relationship. Like I can't count how many times I see relationships that are really at their breaking point right at the end or people have cheated on each other and they want to throw the whole relationship away based on this infidelity. Well, do they want to throw it away, all that work, all that effort, all that time? Or could they just talk and find out what needs were not being met? If they can regroup, 
they can salvage a lot of it if they let go of that shame and stigma and open themselves up to growing or learning or changing the way they think about intimacy. Interesting. So is that, is that a lot of like what you talk about in therapy or like how you work through that with them? Like what kind of interventions yeah, are you using? For sure. Um, interventions I use are a lot. Of, it's a really, it's so funny you say that. There's so many things that I work with. It's very, it's very free form. I do a lot of narrative therapy. I listen and hear what people are saying. And then I challenge them on the stories that they create. So I can't count how many times someone goes, he or she is doing mm-hmm. this. And I say, are they doing this? Or are you creating a story? What proof do you have that that's actually happening? And a lot of times when they're challenged on that, they'll realize that they're so mired in their unhappiness with their partner that they're only seeing the negative. So when I challenge them and say, is that your, is that your story you've created or is that something that you've honestly experienced? You know for a fact this is true. They go, oh, wait. And then opening the conversation. A lot of times I'm simply the mediator for a conversation that's just long overdue. I can't count how many times I've sat in front of someone had them verbalize their thoughts and feelings about their partner, turned to their partner and said, is this the first time you've heard this? And the partner would say, yes, mm. they, had, they had no idea. Think of all the drama that could have been spared if they, number one, one person created a space that was safe for the person to share. And the other person then decided to share with them their wants and needs. It's huge. It's a big step because it opens each person up to a lot of vulnerability, rejection, you know, lots of of challenges. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really powerful. I know I have a a client right now that I struggle with because so they're they're elderly and he is um, his dementia is progressing and he has started masturbating. And (laughs) like in front of his wife and his, his wife gets like, she is extremely upset. And she just, she says it makes her sick to her stomach to see him doing this. And I'm like, I don't know what to say. I don't know like how to, we're not going to fix it. I just, it's, it's her that needs to like accept that? Well, yes know. and no. He's like, I don't, I would never force her. I would never, I would never invalidate her thoughts and right. feelings about it. Obviously, she has a lot to unpack. And there's probably, she's going off of, I mean, how long have they been married? They've been married for, mm-hmm. you know, decades. And now she's seeing this. In her mind, they're maybe past that. Sex is not a priority to her. She doesn't think about it. And now she sees him doing this and it's really upsetting. And it's probably also triggering her into a loss of who he was and some of his personality, that change. It's a real blatant manifestation of his dementia. So it makes sense that she's upset about it. It's, you know, how to navigate that find a safe space for him to do it. Think of it as a child. Can you redirect him to not do it in front of me? 
can you do it somewhere else? Not shame him for it because obviously he has an impulse control, but also validate her concerns. You know, and a lot of times we have older couples are a different era and depending on who they are, where they're from, maybe sex was never a big deal to them to begin with or something that was never really talked about or discussed. And now it's quite literally thrust in her face. <laughs> right. So she's like, you know, it's, it's like, I liken it when I, when I describe like polyamory or open relationships to some people, I liken it to you've never ridden a bicycle, but I'm asking you to get mm-hmm. on a motorcycle. There's so many layers to, to unpack and get through that we're kind of expecting her to jump into the deep end of the pool coupled with the dementia factor and taking care of her husband and everything else. It's a really tough position for everyone to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I would, I would really validate and support her and just be like, I understand. Holy cow. I can't believe yeah. he's doing that. But explain the, the real clinical side of it. Here's why this happens due to his dementia, things like that. And then work with her and find a way to navigate it without shaming her. Of course mm-hmm. it upsets her, makes her sick. But does it make her sick because she's losing him? Does it make her sick because she doesn't like the idea of sex in general or that overt sexual expression? You know, it would be a lot of different things to, to yeah. work with her on. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And to work with him on. You know, even though he has dementia, not letting him off the hook, you know, hey, Mr. <laughs> Bob, um, thank you for doing that. How about we try and do right. it over here? How about we do it in the safe space? How about we do it in the mm-hmm. bathroom? You know, some place like you would teach a child not to expose themselves. You would do the mm-hmm. same with him. <laughs> yes. So what kind of issues come up with children? Because I'm not really in that realm. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Ooh, um, I've been pretty fortunate, I guess I might phrase it, that I haven't had a lot of really challenging sexual issues with younger children. Um, My biggest challenges that I run into is preteens and teens really exploring their sexuality and making sure they do it in a safe manner and a supportive manner, like validating them, especially if they come from a very reserved household where it's Mm -hmm. not talked about. Um, Also breaking the, the cycle of teenage pregnancy, like a grandmother got pregnant when she was a teen, the mother got pregnant when she was teen, and now the teenager daughter is experimenting or has a boyfriend and really trying to empower them to not stigmatize sex, but also educate that, you know, when, when, or what would be the best time for you to be pregnant, Mm -hmm. if at all. And also checking my counter-transference on that one too, being like, you know, (laughs) why do you want children? Let's back it up. So, (laughs) so, um, a big challenge I run into is making sure that people are safe and also educating if there's a a, a large age difference and ensuring that people are really, really respecting that age difference and that everything is legal. You know, as you know, being a mandated reporter, 
we have to be really cautious with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, and you mentioned when we talked offline about like um, sexual trauma um, in teens, can you, Yeah. like, how would you, like, what are some oh. red flags that come up for you and, you know, how do you address that? That's a huge one. Um, I mean, the Me Too movement is very real and very valid. And there are so many individuals, boys and girls alike, that experience sexual trauma in their youth and in their teens. Just things that go too far and they didn't want it to continue, but they did. Um, there's a lot of unpacking of guilt and shame. And I work with a lot of female clients that may have had sexual trauma in their teens and making sure that I present as a safe space as a male person, because a lot of them don't want to work with a male therapist. They've got a lot of, of trauma mm -hmm. and triggers around that, understandably so. So I really try to help them work through that but also from a very sex positive lens, like what happened to you was bad. I support you. Sex itself mm. is not bad because they have a lifetime of sexual experiences ahead of them. And I personally want them to experience the best of it. You know, I, I don't want them to always think that every time they become you know, approach a sexual encounter that is going to be a negative experience. That's right. really sad. Yeah, because I would imagine that would impact their their dating life, their ability to find For you know sure. a, someone to marry, and you know, yeah. yeah, to have children. You know, all sorts of different things. Exploring their sexuality, whatever it may be. I really, really focus on creating a very safe and empowering space, and. I'm a little unorthodox when it comes to therapists in general. I engage in a mild amount of self-sharing, which a lot of therapists don't and are really scared to do so. I never do it under with the idea of making it about me. But if I have an anecdote or an example that normalizes their experience or empowers them, I'm going to share it. That makes sense. I mean, I use that too, and it does take some practice, and you have to be very um, purposeful in the examples that you share, and yeah. you have to be able to redirect it back to them. But I found, yeah, like when I do that, it's very powerful, and it builds rapport, and... Um, yeah, and it, sure. it just it normalizes what they're feeling and and like, oh, like even the therapist, even the social worker feels like this sometimes or has has gone through this. Yeah. Yeah. And and that building rapport, you're not going to have someone open up to you about their sex life unless they really trust mm -hmm. and respect you. You know? So recognizing that and really respecting that and creating that safe space for them to share is absolutely paramount to getting any movement in therapy is my, my personal right. opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... You can be the best, 
you can be the best therapist in the world, but if your client doesn't trust you or want to really share with you, it doesn't matter. You're not going to, you can't get anything going. Yeah, that's true. Wow. And that's so powerful. Yeah. Because it's not a topic that, that we talk about or that's even encouraged or asked about. It's just, it's glossed over, you know, most of the time. And I admit, I, (laughs) I do that too. Um, yeah. And it's definitely an area that we can all work on. I, and I think we all have our blind spots. Like for me, I think I struggle a little bit with the idea when I'm doing assessments and asking those really in-depth questions to a virtual stranger, like um, mm-hmm. suicidality or self-harm is something that I've had to really work through and be okay with delving into. Whereas I can talk about your sex life all day long and we'll ask you anything. But, you know, when it comes to how do you feel, do you want to hurt yourself? I'm like, ooh, <laughs> this is a tough one. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and other people are like, you know, suicide, let's talk about it. And I'm like, I don't want to. It's true. We all have our strengths. That's <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> That's funny. Um, awesome. So I guess. Oh, I had another question. So this one comes up yeah. a lot. How can we best support someone who um, has like wants to come out to their family or has recently come out and maybe they didn't have a positive experience? Like what, what can we do as, as therapists or social workers to support that person? What do they need? Yeah, that's wonderful to ask. Honestly, as a, a, a gay man, as an LGBTQ affirmative person, the number one thing that anyone can do is just love and validation. Like, make sure that that individual knows that they are loved and respected and that they will, if they haven't already, find a, a chosen family, that they have the love and support of an entire community. And there are so many resources, you know, with, um, you know, PFLAG, with parents to help them understand. Um, really also unpacking whatever the family has put into them is big but also doing it in a super respectful way so you're not hurting their relationship with their family. Um, it can be a real delicate balance to support a child coming out without disparaging a family that may be negative about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense? That'd be really difficult. Um, yeah, you don't want to stigmatize mom or dad And what I have found, honestly, just so, so much, here's what I like to say. Think of it this way. If you're a parent and you have a child, the number one goal of most parents is to make sure that their child is safe and happy. With our world, the United States in particular, and our puritanical society and right-wing nut jobs and all that good stuff, 
a lot of individuals are inundated with negative ideas on the LGBT community or homosexuality and things like that. So going to the root of the, of the challenge would be literally educating the parents on how to support and understand their family or or Mm -hmm. how to understand their child. If they think that their child comes out as gay and is going to be a HIV positive prostitute drag queen, well, we need to destigmatize that and work that and understand what their fears are and where that's coming from. It, it, it really boils down to education. So I work in South Central. I work with primarily black and brown families. Most black and brown families identify as a strong religious base mm-hmm. and a lot of times Catholic, which doesn't believe in birth control, which doesn't believe in homosexuality, really finds their strength in the church. With respecting the church, providing education and understanding that for them, that's their only lens is this negativity. So there's this big gap, this big blind spot that they never even considered. And now they're being asked to catch up. So you may have had a child that spent 16 years figuring out who they are and dreading coming out and then they dump it on their parents and their parents have about five minutes to convey support and love. Not every parent gets that right. So providing support and empathy for the parents and, you know, we, I understand your concern. I understand why you're upset. I understand. And then asking them, what are your fears? What can we do to make it more comfortable for you? And then providing that safe space to the child. What are your fears? What can I do to create a safe space for you? And then providing resources, support groups, all of that stuff. Basically, overall normalizing the experience and making sure that people don't view it as just an automatic negative. That's what I always recommend. It's a Mm -hmm. multi-layered approach. Yeah, that's really good. I'm just over here processing all of that. Yeah. I mean, you have a daughter, right? She'll be three. How old is she? (laughs) Thank you. She is adorable. (laughs) I see her on Instagram, you know, she's just the cutest thing ever. Now, you, would you imagine her growing up and saying, mom, I'm gay? No, but I've thought about this, like being a social worker, like I've <laughs> thought about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and... But your yeah. organic, natural expectation, you have an idea. Most parents, because it's simple mm-hmm. majority, it's no fault of anyone. You just expect your child's going to grow up and be heterosexual and get married and right. have I a do kid and live their lives. <laughs> so when, exactly, I don't care who, but she was, yeah. So, you know, you having to process that kind of put yourself in the parent's shoes. Mm-hmm. That could be quite the shock. So, you know, just educating parents and being like, I understand this is like, holy cow, what's going on? And then unpacking that with them and creating a safe space for them as well. Do you find that the parents that you work with, even if they react like, 
in a, in a in a way that might have hurt the rapport with with their kid or hurt their feelings, even though they might initially react like that. Because um, I don't want to say it's like in a bad way, but it's just you know it's just it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, if they react in a way that they yeah. don't, they they like regret later on. Um, do you find that that a lot of times? they want to support their children or are they conflicted? Are they confused? Do they, do they want to have that relationship, you know, the majority of the time? Yes. The majority of the time, the parents, what I find is this interesting thing. I call it the boomerang effect where I think that a lot of parents have now kind of been, inundated with the message you must support no matter what so their instant reaction is yes i love you i support you but then the actual like everyday engagement after that announcement might be a little tense might be a little conflicted might be a little terse might be a little whatever because they're really processing it so there might be a bit of, it's not just a coming out moment. It's kind of a coming out arc. It's a coming out idea. It just keeps kind of moving forward. And everybody needs to, to work kind of as a team to get to that real place of acceptance. And it can take a lot of time. But to answer your question, I really think that most most parents really arc towards the legit desire to wanting to be supportive. And it goes all the way back to just wanting their, mm-hmm. their kids to be happy and supported. Yeah. And if, if, if they can be part of that journey, I mean, why wouldn't sure. they, if there's any sense. way they can. Okay. And then I'm also wondering, given the culture of, of South LA, um, it's pretty rough. Is there a safety concern for people after they come out? Or do you find that they don't come out because of safety? Always. Yeah. I find, yes, I both. I see a lot of people, a lot of children will wait until they're older, like 16, 17, 18, to come out when they may have known or questioned their sexuality in their preteens or you know, as, as children, uh, something that I've always found really fascinating is gay men will know that they are gay from an extremely young age. Like they can remember wanting to hug or kiss some, a boy, another boy, Mm -hmm. like two, three, four years old. Women on the other hand, oftentimes have more of uh, an arc and more of a variation, they may identify as heterosexual and then explore it or come out much later and be more on a spectrum. Kind of more like, I want to say almost pansexual where they would fall for the each individual as opposed to gay men. Even, Even if a gay man comes out in his 20s, or 30s even, he's known he was gay for a long time. There's a lot of repression. I've never known a gay man to wake up at 25 years old and go, oh, (laughs) I guess I'm gay now. No. They have always known if they weren't out, they were just really suppressing it. 
yeah, it's it's a fascinating little quirk to yeah. gender and sexuality. Yeah, that's that I've, interesting, I've huh? Okay. Yeah. And not not speaking for lesbians by any mean or anybody on that spectrum, but mm-hmm. simply my observation professionally has been that. And what I love currently is how many individuals in their teenage years was I'm doing assessments and relating to them. They identify as open or pansexual or bisexual. Okay. When I, when I ask the question and it, it, it's a simple mm-hmm. statement, it's a, yeah. And instead uh, there's like, as opposed to like when I came out or in my high school years, there's a lot more openness. And I think it comes from literally just the exposure and the blatant proliferation of individuals who are out and proud. You can't really avoid it. It's really normalized and it's seen That's primarily true. in a yeah, positive light. Because life. when I was in high school, I knew of like two girls who were gay, but they really didn't talk about it or like they didn't really identify as it. And I don't know, maybe it was just with me, because maybe I wasn't yeah. open to it, or I don't know how I was in high school, but um, it definitely seems much more <laughs> right. open and talked about now amongst the youth than it was even back, like, in the early 2000s. Yeah, agreed. And I graduated, I'm old, so I graduated back in the 90s, and I remember uh, individuals who I think we had one person that was out. I'm a little bit of an anomaly because mm-hmm. I grew up and I was born and raised in Montana. So I had either the like very, very out and proud, very in your face or the closet cases like on the down low. I rarely experienced just somebody yeah. just being gay and being chill with it. And it was a, it was a fascinating experience. It really caught me off guard and really kind of made my coming out a bit more of a struggle because I didn't have really any super positive role models because I'm like, I didn't identify with the very out in your face, making a point aspect. And I didn't identify with the shame based in the closet idea. I just wanted to be me. And if that meant loving Mm -hmm. another man, then what was the problem? (laughs) <laughs> so so how did you it was come out because that does time. sound fascinating being in like rural america and is yeah. it rural over there that's totally a stereotype <laughs> okay for sure it's rural it's rural there's like i mean there's a lot of cities in california that have the more population than the entire state for sure um my coming out was honestly pretty uneventful um, as I said, even as, since I was a younger person, a child, I never really experienced a lot of shame. My personality is very sturdy. I was also very lucky because both of my parents were educators. So they were both in the high school setting for a long period of time. So they really understood kids. So when I finally had the gumption to come out, which was, you know, 17 ish, I think, I think 18, I kind of came out to a few people and then my mom and then my dad in succession. Um, I had a really positive response. It was very much, (laughs) 
when I came out to my mom, she yeah. looked right at me and said, oh, so you're not going to lie anymore? So it was, uh, I was pretty darn gay my whole life. <laughs> and so my whole, my whole family, we have a very kind of a smaller, tight-knit family, extended family. And they were, when the news broke, it was a very Aww. big, oh, finally, you know. <laughs> so... But I was really lucky. It could have gone very poorly growing up in Montana. But people don't understand Montana is very independent. It's very cowboy. Okay. You do you. Just don't mess with us. So I wasn't hurting anybody. Nobody cared. So it was not really an issue. I, we grew up very independent. Mm-hmm. So we could kind of do yeah. whatever we needed yeah, to I do. Yeah, I feel like as parent or, you know, being a parent now, yeah. you can tell what your kid is interested in and what they're not interested in. Um, so for sure, I can, like, I'm not surprised that your parents weren't surprised because, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm very mean, I'm very, yeah, out. yeah, <laughs> um, awesome. So, I feel like we talked about a lot of things that social workers or clinicians can do to help. I mean, so many different people in each like area, um. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you feel is important we should know around um, like being sex positive or the LGBT community? No, I think we really covered it. I think my biggest thing, I just would always love to just reemphasize and reinforce that as clinicians really, really try to focus on or get education and be comfortable around sex and sexuality, no matter what demographic you work with, it is a factor. Love, relationships, sex, all of those things, it's only going to help you. If you're only talking about your, you know, how my job is going and I feel upset about whatever and family life, you're really missing a very large portion of this person's being if you're not addressing how they're engaging intimately. And I think it's important to remember this applies to us too, as people, we're not just clinicians and social workers that, you know, in this industry, we have such a high rate of burnout and like our stress, our stressful jobs, like the long hours. Now we're, you know, like the dangerous position sometimes, you know, with COVID, um, it's all very stressful. Yeah. And um, to take the time and to just love on ourselves and love on our partners. And oh my goodness, yeah. Self care, I always say and tease people, however you define it, it's okay. I love individuals who are like, oh yeah, my self care is <laughs> going to the gym and I hate it. That's I'm like, chore. that's not self care, <laughs> you know? If you. If you don't like working out, don't call the gym your self-care. If your self-care is staring at a blank wall or playing Candy Crush, so be it. That's awesome. Knock yourself out. So, yeah, it's so important to really focus on our own personal mental health. Like, I had a um, a team meeting or group supervision the other day, and there's like 10 of us that are all either team leads or licensed that we kind of get together and talk. And such a huge focus was on what are you doing for self-care right now? You know, we're doing Zoom sessions. Everybody's burnt out on Zoom already. 
You know, how do you engage a teenager on a conference call? You know, how do you, and then if you're working from home, how do you separate working from home versus your own personal space? Are you looking at your laptop and thinking you need to do notes all the time? What do you do? It's all very important to prioritize your own self. That's true. And I think as, um, as social workers, a lot of times, like we get into this business to help other people. Um, and we forget to help ourselves or it's hard for us to accept that we need help as well. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's really important. It, I can't tell you, I worked a job for a little while where I didn't really have a support structure. I was just kind of doing my own thing. And I can imagine a lot of individuals, especially those in private practice, being able to really engage with a fellow therapist, a fellow social worker who really understands what it's like in the trenches. You know, we see three or four clients in a day and people are like, oh, that's nothing. You don't understand the three or four clients or four or five clients in a day can burn you out if you're doing an hour's worth of focus, being attentive, empathetic, solutions focused, then writing yeah. notes and everything else. It, it That's exhausting. Our brain it's uses up like 20% of our energy. Like it's crazy how much energy our brain uses. Yeah. Yeah. It is nuts. So where can people find time. you and get more information? I know you mentioned a lot of cool things like, um, like workshops and the sex positive parties and I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's all good. Um, for me, the best thing to do is just my first and last name. If you Google me, I pop up. Um, I made a point of having my Facebook, Instagram, website, Psychology Today, everything is just DamonHolzem.com. I make sure everything matches. So I make it a low barrier. I want people to be able to find me easily for better or for worse. Well, thank you so much, Damon. I really like talking to you today. And I think we covered a lot of powerful, powerful stuff. I agree. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'm so glad that you reached out to me to do this. I love furthering this conversation and putting it out there. Hopefully it's beneficial to other people. Bye. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, write a review and give us five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. This just helps other people just like you find us and join our community. Also, I would love to connect with you on Instagram. You can find me at Social Workers Rise. I can't wait to see you next week. Bye.